0: Hello and welcome to the "So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist" podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, MarineBio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Today, we're going to chat with Jessica Pate, who is the project manager for the Marine Megafauna Foundation of the Americas. Jessica studies manta rays off Florida's Atlantic coast. We chat about how a North Carolina girl traveled the high seas, literally, and ended up finding her calling, studying these winged wonders. Without further ado, here's Jessica.
1: So, what inspired you to become a marine biologist, and how is it the same or different than what you had imagined?
2: Yeah, so growing up, I guess the consistent thing I always knew I wanted to do was to work with animals, and in, in some way, um, I always thought maybe I would be like some kind of large animal veterinarian. Or after seeing Free Willy, I thought maybe I would be an orca trainer. When I went to college, I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do other than the fact that I wanted to do something good for the world and I didn't want to be behind a desk. So that led me to majoring in environmental science. And even though I'd always kind of leaned towards marine science, I I hadn't really set that as my goal even after graduating college. It actually wasn't until I got scuba certified that I was like, I definitely want to study the marine world. After graduating college, I moved to Costa Rica and worked at um, worked on a sea turtle nesting beach down in the Osa Peninsula of Costa Rica. And when I came back to the States, Honestly, I was just looking for any job in particular. But since I had sea turtle experience, I was applying for uh, some jobs on sea turtle nesting beaches. And I actually ended up getting two, one in Texas and one in Florida, and ended up choosing to come down to Florida and work with ecological associates.
1: I didn't realize you had spent time in Costa Rica. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it was really great. It definitely like submitted more for me,
2: like that I wanted to you know always involve to involve travel in my work and I really like working in you know remote places it's it brings its own set of challenges but it's it's also very interesting
1: yeah yeah I can see that you came back to Florida and then that's when you kind of got your master yeah your master's while you were
2: so it wasn't as direct a route to getting my master's degree I spent probably three years uh working in the summers on the turtle nesting beaches in Florida. And then in the winters, I would go work on a project in a different country. So I did that for three years. And then once I realized I couldn't get the types of jobs that I really wanted to without a higher degree is when I decided to go back to graduate school.
1: That makes sense. What are some (laughs) of the other jobs that you were doing?
2: So I did another sea turtle Research assistant position in Ghana in West Africa involved uh, tagging turtles at night and researching uh, mostly olive ridleys. And then I also ended up working at a dive shop in Honduras and getting my professional dive certification.
1: What was your thesis on in college then?
2: Uh, yeah, so graduate school, um, my experience might have been a little different than typical graduate student experience. My, my original thesis was looking at when during development do sea turtles imprint on the earth's magnetic field so this involves manipulating the magnetic field around turtle nest and then testing the hatchling sea turtles for their navigational or orientation abilities i did this experiment for two years you know staying up all night in the lab and watching turtles swim around in circles in the dark and basically that didn't yield any Inclusive results. The things I really wanted to, when I went out of gra- into graduate school, I had some very clear goals. And these goals were I wanted to present at a scientific conference and publish a scientific paper. And after talking with my committee and going over my experimental results, they didn't feel like these results would be worthy of that. So in my last semester of graduate school, I ended up completely changing my entire thesis and using some data that was already collected and doing a thesis on how the body proportions of young sea turtles change through development and how that might be related to their ecology and evolutionary pressures. What did you find? (laughs) Basically, shell turtles the green and loggerhead turtles to the to the leatherback turtles we basically found that leatherback turtles are developing this like deeper body plan that's probably related to the fact that they're going to become deeper divers and they have to prepare their bodies to handle colder waters when they're older. The loggerheads and green turtles are developing body plans that are likely more suited for predation defense since they're a lot smaller than the leatherbacks. The leatherbacks are probably outsizing the predators a lot faster nice. than the hardshell turtles.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
2: Yeah, but my advisor is actually still, six years later, still doing those magnetic experience experiments <laughs> that i began, And I think he pretty much has very similar results to
1: what I've got. Yeah, I was going to say that... That didn't sound like, a you know, a couple-year master's thesis. That sounded like a really long, in-depth study. The problem
2: with it was it's difficult to do because when you're working on an endangered species, obviously my sample size was very limited to what I could get a permit for. And since... There's only a certain season for hatchlings. You can't work on it all year round. You can only work on it during a specific time of year. My sample size was always very small and I had very little room for error. So my first season I had a hurricane come through, which already knocked down my already really small sample size. I don't know, they're interesting experiments, but it's something to think about for people who are going to grad school is you need to think about something that you can actually for sure get data from. Um, because doing field work it is not always guaranteed
1: <laughs> nature does her own thing sometimes most of the time actually are you dive instructor what's your level yeah, I'm on? a
2: dive instructor Yeah, well, I actually had never planned on becoming a dive instructor that was actually
1: I mean, I feel like that's kind of the ideal setting. Like, we're going to learn about this, and now we're going to go dive and see that. Where did you go with the sailboat?
2: So that company, it's called Seamaster, has two sailboats. One that sails around the Caribbean. They basically do a loop from the British Virgin Islands to Grenada and back, all the islands in between. And the other sailboat sails around the world, just works its way around the world every couple years. But I was mostly in the Caribbean for that job, which is really... it's. And then you're experiencing marine biology every day from even like what you're looking at when you're sailing to when you're diving. It's a really fun way to
1: teach. It's awesome. And that's a position that your master's degree like afforded you to have, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Because in grad
2: school, um, in order to get a stipend and tuition waivers, I was a teaching assistant. And honestly, that was the thing I was not looking forward to about grad school. I was really nervous about it. I was dreading it. And it actually turned out to be one of my favorite things about grad school. I really loved teaching. Even though I was teaching anatomy, something I honestly didn't know that much about going into it. um, (laughs) So I learned, learned while teaching. I found that I just, I really loved teaching students and interacting with them and helping figure out ways to explain things and get your students to understand. Um, and it's even more fun when you're teaching something that you're really passionate about. So when I left grad school, I was open to teaching positions, and I happened to get one that involved teaching and being able to travel and dive and kind of combine a lot of the things I was interested in into one job. It's
1: pretty awesome. What is the coolest project that you've worked on?
2: Hmm, I mean, not to brag, when I just started Is my favorite. <laughs>
1: That's good so tell us a little bit more about that then.
2: To go rewind maybe seven or eight years when I was first doing the sea turtle jobs in Florida when I was in my early 20s. Those involved getting up in the morning and riding down the beach or on ATV counting the sea turtle tracks from the night before. We were basically out on the beach all day and Sometimes when I was out there I would see these like big dark shapes swimming next to shore I I honestly I didn't know what they were and when I found out that they were actually manta rays And I did some like Google searching and asking around and found out that No one knew anything about manta rays in Florida and I found that kind of mind-boggling since They're this like big very charismatic species There's so many marine biologists in Florida, like, why hasn't anyone studied them before? Um, And I actually originally tried to study them in grad school. Long story short, it didn't work out. And I've just had that project in the back of my head for years and years and years now. And after I left my job on the sailboats, I came back to Florida and took another job in environmental consulting. But... It wasn't really what I wanted to be doing, so I I was just looking for a passion project. So I decided on my days off uh, to go out and just see if I could even find manta rays, because I had never even explored that topic, if it was possible to locate them from a boat. Um, Because a lot of people I talked to down here told me that it it wasn't going to be possible. So uh, my boyfriend and I went out on our days off from work, and that was in 2016, and we found that we could find manta I wouldn't say it's easily, but you could definitely find them with regularity. And since then, we've just been learning more and more interesting things about them.
0: That's pretty
1: awesome. So you have a day job, and this is kind of like a passion project that you started. That
2: I'm currently trying to turn into a job.
1: <laughs> I mean, I actually think that's... it's. I don't know. It's pretty awesome. It's like very entrepreneurial and like true, true passion and science.
2: You have to be passionate about it or else
1: you wouldn't do it. (laughs) Right. So you have linked up with Marine Megafauna Foundation. How Mm -hmm. did that come about?
2: So Andrea Marshall is one of the founders of the Marine Megafauna Foundation. She's a leading manta expert around the world. She's the one who split the manta genus into two species about 10 years ago. We had actually been in touch back in grad school when I wanted to do this for a project. And she was very, very supportive and encouraging. But since it didn't work out, we, we lost touch for a little bit. But when I decided to start looking into the project again back in 2016, I contacted her and let her know. That I was doing it, and she gave me some advice and was really excited by what we were finding. Um, Because there is another research project on mantas in Florida up north, with the Georgia Aquarium is studying a seasonal aggregation there. But the problem with the northern project is you can't get in the water and do any in-water research because of the turbidity. So she was really excited to learn that there was a place in Florida where you could actually get in the water with the mantas, and learn about the individuals, um, which is typical data collection method for studying these animals. Last year, we um, decided to collaborate on this project together, since she is an expert and is a huge help to me all the time.
1: That's awesome. Explain why do you have to get in the water? Why is that such a big part of the process?
2: Yeah, so doing these kinds of studies where you want to learn about the life history of these animals it can be really helpful to know to be able to identify individuals that's why with a lot of turtle studies i used to do before you're actually putting tags in the turtle so you can know if this turtle is returning to nest how many times it has nested in a season how many eggs it laid in a season and how many years it takes off between nesting you know if you don't know who the individual is you can't know that information and so with manta rays um you don't have to put a tag on them to do that because they kind of have a natural tag, so to speak, which is the spot patterns on their belly are unique to each individual manta, kind of like a a human fingerprint. And so if you get in the water and get a photo of the belly of a manta ray, then you can identify that individual. And then based on that, you can learn about um, how long they're spending in an area. If we see that manta over and over again, we know that it's residing in that area for a certain amount of time. Uh, If that manta is recited somewhere else, you can learn about the migration patterns of um, these individuals or populations just by the photo of their bellies.
1: That's pretty awesome. How often do you recite them elsewhere?
2: So so far, none of our mantas has been recited outside of Florida. Okay. We've had some people within Florida recite the mantas I'm studying. And this could be for a number of reasons. It could be maybe they're not venturing outside of Florida, or maybe they're venturing to places where people aren't in the water as much. You know, if they're maybe going up the eastern seaboard of the United States where the in-water visibility isn't as good and there aren't as many divers, you know, they could very easily be missed. They could be going, you know, out into really deep water off our coast, and um, obviously they wouldn't be seen there, so... Those are all the questions that I would like to answer eventually. But um, MMF has a global online database called Manta Matcher, which you can access at mantamatcher.org. And this is a platform where um, divers can actually become citizen scientists. And if they see a manta on ray underwater and get a photo or a video of its belly, then they can upload that. And that photo will go to researchers so we can add those individuals to our databases, and around the world, that has been really, really helpful with Manta research, especially in some places like Asia and Africa, they've gotten a lot of data that way. And currently, right now, I'm trying to educate more people here in Florida and maybe in areas around the Caribbean as well about that, because I think a lot of people just don't know about it, so maybe they see a Manta and take a picture, but aren't reporting it to
1: anybody. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. I mean, just knowing you, I, I knew about about the individual spots thing, but I just learned last week about the manta matcher, so that's pretty incredible.
2: Yeah, I've been trying to really spread it around to the dive shops, but since dive shops very rarely, they don't see manta rays that much here, uh, on the at least on the dive sites. It's a fairly rare occurrence. But even then, I've still had a dive shop this year, or mantas that they saw on a local wreck. Very cool. Um, So it's about spreading spreading the word.
1: Absolutely. So where else are mantas located in the world?
2: Manta rays are found circumglobally. There's two species of manta ray. The reef manta, manta alfredi, tends to be located in more tropical areas and more in Asia and off the coast of eastern Africa. Um, the giant manta ray manta birostris is can go up into more temperate waters or cooler waters is located more in the americas it's also sympatric with the reef mantas in some places in asia and africa which is how andrea marshall figured out that there were two species cuz she just happened to study mantas and one of the.
1: So between the two species is it just size that's the difference how do you how did you determine between the species and then how would you like determine the third species
2: Um, the distribution of their spots on their bellies and the presence or absence of a a caudal spine which is basically like a, a little remnant spine on their tail so those are the main attributes you can use to visually see the differences between the two species and there's some other stuff you could look at but you would need a
1: microscope to look at some of the skin and teeth differences pretty interesting pretty incredible really so this is the coolest project you've worked on. Do you have a favorite field story or stories to tell, like best or worst day? And that doesn't have to be like Manta related. It could be anytime time in your marine biology career. I know there's got to be a couple. <laughs>
2: not knowing what is going on. There were some people like on the beach with the bonfire behind this guy who had approached us, which I'd never really seen before, but I wasn't concerned about. There's people on the beach all the time. And Joe was really weird. For about an hour, he wouldn't tell me what was going on, and then he eventually told me that if that guy had approached me, he was gonna take me to the fire and make me eat goat. And that if I eat the goat, that I would never be able to go home again and that I would have to live in that village for the rest of my life wearing the same clothes that I was wearing then so I'm pretty (laughs) sure that had to do some kind of different village it was a different village he was from so maybe there were some village superstitions that were playing into that I still like we never went back to that part of the beach that night so I really don't know what would have happened or what (laughs) that guy was approaching us about but still when you're out on the beach and middle of the night in the middle of nowhere and people are telling you scary stuff it it can be a little creepy uh
1: absolutely (laughs) absolutely that would definitely stick in my memory
2: (laughs) so the moral of the story is don't eat the
1: goat don't
2: eat the goat.
1: it's a you know good lesson good life lesson there so what's the favorite part about your job
2: my favorite part about it is developing all these questions and starting very slowly to get the answers to them and it's like my favorite part about being a scientist in general is you know you go out into the field and see something and it just prompts you to think of all these other things you want to know and you know a lot of these questions that i want to answer are going to take probably years uh, being out in the field to learn the answers to, but that's one of the most exciting things about it is that one day we will know the answer to these questions that no one has known before. And that's what keeps me doing it. And also to protect these creatures that we see a lot of adverse interactions with humans on these manta rays that I'm studying. And it's also a big part of what I want to do is
1: uh, try to reduce or negate these interactions if possible. So what are some of the things that you see with the mantas?
2: What we mostly see, we see about almost a third of the mantas we see either are entangled or are foul-hooked with uh, fishing line. This can be problematic, you know, sometimes if it's wrapped too tightly around them, it's obviously hurting them and causing injury. But also if they have a lot of line hanging off of them, and that line gets caught on something, manta rays are ram ventilators, so they have to keep on swimming through the water in order to breathe. So if this line gets caught on something and they can't swim anymore, then they can um, suffocate and die. So we're trying to figure out when and where these interactions are occurring. Actually, we've been working on that today. We're gonna develop a study and try to figure out exactly how these interactions are occurring and what the best way we can, what we can do to mitigate them.
1: Do you have any hypotheses about this, or is it still too early to tell?
2: It's probably pretty too early to tell. I I really don't know. I mean, it could be that fishermen are casting underneath them to catch fish. A lot of times, you know, other fish will hang out under big fish. Right. Um, Although, I don't see game fish hanging under these mantas, like you would see in some other places. So that's a possibility. It could be they don't know what a manta ray is and just cast at it i the mantas could be just swimming into the lines possibly yeah so i I really don't know and that's why i want to do a formal study of it to make sure we get the the real
1: answers that's pretty awesome curious to see what you all come up with me too (laughs) so if listeners want to how can they help with mantas
2: Yeah, so one of the great ways to do it is what I mentioned before. If you're a diver in the water with a camera and you see a manta ray, get a picture of that spot pattern on the belly and report it to MantaMatcher. There's lots of cool projects you can volunteer with Um, around the world. MMF has projects in Mozambique and Indonesia. Most of these projects have volunteer programs where you can go and either be an intern or a research assistant or a volunteer. And dive and contribute to manta research awesome
1: what advice would you give to somebody who wants to be a marine biologist or what advice should they ignore Mm
2: -hmm. um so advice for being a marine biologist um you need to make sure that you really want to do it um it's a very difficult career but i would encourage anyone who wants to to pursue it but i think my biggest piece of advice would be Get experience in some different things that will make you more marketable. Like if that's getting a professional dive certification or getting a captain certification. One thing I would kill to know how to do is to service boat engines. I think that should be a mandatory
1: class for a marine biology degree because it kind of should be. Would t-
2: save me a lot of money and a lot of stress to be able to do all of it myself. So it's stuff like that that you don't think of, like knowing the science and the theory and how to collect data is all really important and that should all be done. But you can also do all these other things that make you um, a more desirable person for a job or make you more confident.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That would definitely make you somebody that you can count on in the field, which is always good to have around. So I feel like I know the answer to this question, but you know, it could have surprised me. What's your favorite sea creature? <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean, honestly, manta rays are my favorite by far. They're the coolest because, like, other than marine mammals, there's no other creature in the sea that's that, like, curious about you and, you know, seems to possess, like, a higher level of intelligence. It's really rare to see. But, you know, that being said, like, when I go diving, half the time I'm taking pictures of, like... You know, the teeniest, tiniest blinnies and stuff. I, I love everything out there. Uh, I'm not too picky. I'm happy as long as I'm in the water.
1: <laughs> Thanks for uh, being on the podcast. <laughs>
0: now, Jessica and I would love to hear from you. What was one thing you learned from today's episode? Was it a manta fact or was it something else? Comment below the show notes over at marinebio.life or send us an email at hello at marinebio.life. We read every single one. Have you ever wanted to explore the underwater realm but aren't sure how to get dive certified? I've got you covered. Head over to marinebio.life/scubaforbeginners and grab your copy of my new scuba guide. In it, I cover the different certifying agencies, gear, lingo, and the number one thing to look out for when you're getting certified. This guide will leave you confident in how to become certified and ready to dive in. Head on over to marinebio.life/scubaforbeginners to get your copy and get diving already marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please take a moment to subscribe to our channel. It helps other ocean enthusiasts find us. And we'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.
2: Arr!